This is Growing the Valley, a podcast by the University of California, Agriculture and Natural Resources. I'm one of your hosts, Luke Milliron, Farm Advisor for Butte, Tehama, and Glen Counties. I'm your other host, Phoebe Gordon, Orchard Farm Advisor for Madera and Merced Counties. speaking with John Chilcote, who is the Southern San Joaquin team engineer for the USDA NRCS, um, and he's based out of Fresno County. And so we're going to be talking about irrigation pumps, and so we're going to be covering a couple different concepts today, how pumps work, issues with them, filtration systems, and pump capacity. So uh, thanks for sitting down with me and discussing pumps, John. You're welcome. Thank you, Phoebe. Okay, so first let's kind of go over basic information for how pumps work, and I guess that will kind of lead us into where things can go wrong. Sounds great. Okay, so normally a pump works by having a power source, such as a motor or an engine, and that spins a shaft, and at the end of the shaft there's impellers, and those impellers get turned and fling the water outward, which generates pressure and flow that is pushed down the pipeline to uh, provide an irrigation system or some other system with water. Are there any big mechanical parts that can wear down with a pump over time where you might cause problems where maybe it's not pulling up as much water as it should be and kind of causing a feedback loop? Yes. So the impellers are the primary wear point on the pump. And uh, underneath the impellers, typically, there's these things called wear rings, and they uh, get eaten away by sand as do the veins in the pump. And as those wear, the water leaks basically from the output back into the input, which creates extra flow, but it's just a circular loop so you don't get it out the end of the pipe. So if I have an irrigation pump, how will I tell it's happening? Well, my recommendation is when you get the pump and it's new, you monitor what the flow and pressure is Mm -hmm. and uh, also the amount of power that's going in. So you can look at your power meter and see how many kilowatts it's using. And you can uh, see what the pressure and flow is using a pressure gauge and a flow meter. And then when you see something changing, then you know that you should uh, investigate what the cause of that is. So if I am thinking about installing a new well, you know, something that I get asked sometimes and I never have the answer because this is not in my wheelhouse at all, but where can you find out how deep to drill a well when you're installing a new well? I would start by looking at the Department of Water Resources website, and they have a groundwater section, and they have monitoring wells throughout the valley, and you can get an idea what the water depth is in your area. Okay. Um, well, I guess we can put that link on the website. Is talking to your neighbors an acceptable way to do it too, or are there things that can change uh, you know, from like a site-to-site basis? That's a good way to do it as well, but a lot of times the neighbors don't know. You might be able to drop a tape measure down in a neighbor's well or something like that. That would work. That could be a deep tape measure in some areas. That could be. <laughs> okay. One of the things that I have come across when trying to assess why people's irrigation system may not be, or they may not be getting as much water as they think they should be to their trees is issues with the well itself. So the irrigation systems will age and the pumps themselves will also age. So what are some of the most common problems that you see when 
either bad design or pump wear and tear. Right. So the biggest problem I see is that people don't match the pump to their irrigation system. So you always select your pump based on the flow rate. And then you basically put the impellers in series to get the pressure. And a lot of times people will get a pump and then independently design an irrigation system without knowing that that pump's designed to put out a certain amount of flow at, at maximum efficiency. So you really want to match of the pump to the uh, irrigation system flow rate and pressure requirements. You okay. need to be able to meet the evapotranspiration of the crop. And so typically here in the valley, you need to have at least 10 gallons per minute per acre. And then that'll pretty much cover our crops with micro-irrigation systems. So then you pick the emitters and then the emitters dictate what the flow rate is. And then you figure out how big of a size you can do at one time with that pump. So that's kind of the design process. And then the big problem a lot of people run into, which you asked about, is the water table isn't always the same level. And sometimes it fluctuates. And so when you put in a pump, you want to make sure that you've planned in advance for any dropping of the water table. Can you do something like look at the DWR website and see how fast the water table's been dropping to kind of predict how far down you might want to drill your well? Yes, they actually have graphs and it shows you what the water table's doing over time. And so you can kind of get an idea. I mean, if we had a crystal ball, we could look in the future better, but yeah. um, we can look at the past and see how it's been doing. What about maintenance on the pump itself? So there's different types of pumps. Uh, the most common for wells that I see are the vertical turbines, which have the motor up on top and the uh, impellers are down in the hole and there's a long line shaft that goes in between. So it's important to make sure they get oil, regardless of the type of pump, is if it's set up for oil. And the, um, there's specifications on how much oil they should get, how many drops usually uh, they should get per minute. When those wear rings wear on a vertical turbine, you can, there's a little nut on the top that that whole line shaft hangs from. And you can loosen that up and lower it down and then basically take the slack back off and adjust that clearance. That's one of the benefits of the vertical turbine irrigation pumps. So we talked a little bit about choosing, matching the flow rate um, and pump capacity for the irrigation system. Before we started with this interview, you were talking about um, predicting aging and where the water table might drop. So you had these, these curves for the pump and the pump efficiency. Can you talk a little bit about that with trying to design an irrigation system to meet your pump needs or picking a pump to meet the irrigation system's needs? Sure. So uh, after you design the irrigation system, assuming you do that step first, mm -hmm. it, you come up with a flow rate that you want to achieve. And then when you pick your pump, you can look up the impeller. Um, I have one in my office, which is an 11JKH flowway impeller. And there's a pump curve for it. And in that pump curve, it gives you a graph of how much pressure each impeller will give and how much flow it will put out when you spin that shaft at a certain speed. And electric motors, unless you have a variable frequency drive hooked up to them, uh, they want to spin at a certain speed. With that, you can determine what the pump's design flow should be. For this particular pump, it's 660 gallons per minute. That's where you get optimal efficiency with the A trim on the impeller. So the impeller can be shaved so it's a smaller diameter, and then it gives you multiple curves. But the full diameter of this particular pump is 8.308 inches. 
So this curve is the max you're going to get. As the pump wears, that curve's going to drop down gotcha. to these smaller sizes. Okay. Gotcha. So you want to design slightly below. If you expect that the water table is going to drop, then you want to design it to have extra pressure. Otherwise, you want to design it for a little bit of extra flow, just a little bit, you know, maybe like a less than 5% efficiency off of the optimal. You mentioned a, a VFD or a variable frequency drive. Yes. Are there instances in which that is really beneficial or is that just kind of if you want the Cadillac pump, that's what you get? A variable frequency drive definitely has its uses. Mm -hmm. So a VFD works by changing the frequency and voltage going into the motor, electric motor. The electricity in the U.S. is at 60 hertz, and the variable frequency drive drops that down lower as needed. And the speed that the motor turns is based on that frequency. So it's basically riding the magnetic wave around the, the motor. And so as you drop that frequency, you drop the speed that it turns. And when you drop the frequency, you drop the voltage relative to the frequency. You, it, uh, if it's a uh, 480 volt motor, that would be the voltage at 60 hertz. And then if you dropped it in half, it would be half that, so 240. One of the big benefits is you can do a soft startup. So when you start your pump, you start it up slow, and then you don't really shock the well the same way you do. It's just gentler to start it up slowly. So that's one benefit. But the primary benefit is if you want to change the amount of pressure you get out of your pump. So as you change the uh, speed of the pump, if you're at a certain efficiency, when you double the speed of this pump, it wants to put out double the flow but it wants to put out four times the pressure. Yeah. They're called pump affinity laws. And so it, it's a very predictable way that it affects the pump curve when you change that speed. So a VFD is a very good alternative to throttling the water. Yeah. Um, when you throttle the water, you're basically going against pressure you didn't, you didn't need to pay for, basically, because you're being billed essentially for the power that you're using or the energy. Power is instantaneous, energy is power times time. So if you throttle a valve or you do a feedback loop to bleed off the flow back into the source, you're wasting that energy. Whereas a VFD, you're just throttling it down so you aren't pumping extra water. Can you go over um, the types of filtration systems that you can have in your irrigation system? There's three typical types of filters I see out on the irrigation systems. There are screen filters, there are sand media filters, and there are disc filters. And sand media filters I like because they give you three-dimensional filtration, whereas with a screen, if you take a pine needle, you can stick it right through the screen. And so the sand gives you some advantages there. And then also you can clean out the sand pretty easily. What they do is they shut off the flow into one of the tanks at a time, and then they allow the flow to go backward through it and it lifts all the debris out of it and out into the flush line and it cleans the filter pretty effectively. Now disc filters are pretty good too. They, uh, they use little discs like washers that are pressed together and they're textured and the water flows through those and then when you back flush those 
the water goes through it backward and they separate and they quickly release everything out. So the back flush doesn't use much water. It does it really quickly. Although there's some challenges when they come back together, you want to make sure they don't hang up on something and then not filter a section of the filter. Is there any benefit to having more than one filter in your irrigation system? Yes. Well, typically when you have tanks, you have a minimum of three or four. Mm -hmm. And the idea is you're shutting off the flow to one of those filter tanks mm -hmm. and all your water then is going through the remaining filter tanks and going back out to the flush line and the field at the same time. So a lot of people will put a uh, pressure sustaining valve downstream to shut off the flow to the field when it's doing a back flush mm -hmm. and that'll give them the pressure they need to lift the water out of the, uh, the filter. Is there a benefit to having both a sand media filter and a screen filter in an irrigation system, or can you just get away with one? Typically, you can get away with just the sand media filters. Okay. What sort of maintenance do you need to do with a sand media filter? Well, sometimes they're automatically flushed. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they're manually flushed, but they need to be flushed. And then it's recommended that you change the sand out every four years or so. Mm -hmm. And what happens to the sand, you start with crushed sand, and that has really sharp edges on it. And when slimes try to get through there, it grabs them and holds them in place. And as time goes on, the sand gets rounded down to round shapes like uh, river rock. And then it doesn't have those sharp points to grab the debris, and it tends to slither through there and get through your filter. Moving on to the end of the life of a pump, um, you know, pump efficiency is going to decrease as the pump ages. So how do you determine how efficient your pump is and at what point in time do you decide it's time to replace it? Okay, so I mentioned that you should keep track of how it performed when it was new. So that would be the key there. But you can actually calculate it as well. And with an electric pump, what you need to know is the pumped water level. So how high the water is being lifted and the pressure and you would convert that to total dynamic head in units of feet and maybe this is a little bit much but we can put the equations on the website okay. so yeah so the total dynamic head can be calculated by determining the amount of lift from the pumped water level to the discharge of the pump plus the pressure at that point times 2.32 and that gives you your total dynamic head and you multiply that times your gallons per minute and divide by 5,315 and that gives you your water power in kilowatts and then when you look on your power meter and you see how many kilowatts you have you divide the water power by the electrical power and that gives you your overall pumping plant efficiency and typically you start somewhere when it's new around 70% efficient and when it's below about 50% efficient then it's pretty much a no-brainer to do some pump work to bring up that efficiency so you aren't paying too much in electricity. Um, you can do the same thing with uh, fuel but it's a little bit more complicated because you have to measure the consumption of the fuel. Is there any time, like with a car, where it's just no longer feasible to continue repairing it and you have to replace it? Okay, so the parts that wear out on the pump are the, the bearings, the impellers, and the bowls. Those are the main things that you would need to replace. Well, Ron, thanks for uh, discussing pumps with me today. I learned a lot because I don't know anything about pumps. <laughs> now I know more. <laughs> uh, you're welcome.
Thanks for listening to Growing the Valley, a UCANR podcast. You can find out more about this episode at our website, growingthevalleypodcast.com. We would like to thank the Almond Board of California and the California Pistachio Research Board for providing funding. We would also like to thank my sister, Muriel Gordon, for writing and recording our theme music.